Well, you know, traveling, as I said, is a blessing. Um, I find myself a lot on airplanes. Uh, but there's also something, something special about coming home. And, you know, this message tonight is really about coming home. Because you know how it is when you've been gone, maybe on vacation, or maybe you have to travel for your work. When you come back home and you've, you've slept in other, place, in other places for maybe some days and you just walk into your house, there's something about that familiarity, right? There's something just about that personal space. And, and you know what? The Bible, when it wraps up this whole st story of salvation, when you come to the last chapters of the book of Revelation, it talks about us coming home. I mean, in the sense of coming home to the place that God has prepared for us, coming home to the place that God has in store for us, our heavenly home. And so we want to talk a little bit about that tonight, about our heavenly home and what that is going to be like and some of the events that are going to lead up to uh, that place where we will be together with Jesus. And so we're going to spend some time in the last chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, during this series, we've had 16 evenings in the series War of Thrones. We have been able to look at a number of prophecies within the book of uh, Daniel and in the book of Revelation. And I'm, I'm, by the way, just so glad that Andre is going to continue to study with you uh, through these amazing and interesting books, Daniel and Revelation. And so I'm very, uh, very happy that he's going to uh, start this group that you can be a part of, where you can come out once a week and where you can actually systematically, structuredly go through the books of Daniel and Revelation. Because there's a lot in those books that we've not been able to cover in the short amount of, uh, of, of 16 evenings together. Uh, but we have been able to look at some of, the, some of the main prophecies in these books that have been very fascinating and hopefully eye-opening and inspirational as we prepare for our final home, as we prepare to meet Jesus when he comes. And so we want to look at the, um, some of the things that are written there in those final chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, um, we looked, uh, not yesterday, uh, but on Wednesday, we looked at the topic of the movement of God in Bible prophecy. And we also looked at the counterfeit movement that is at work in our world today and that was characterized or described by Mystery Babylon. Now, the good news in Revelation chapter 18 is that we read about the fall of Babylon. Babylon is not the conquering power in the end time. This superstructure that is going to rise itself against God, this structure that is going to seek to oppose religion upon mankind, is in the end going to be defeated in this war of thrones. And so chapter 18 describes the fall of Babylon. And then as we get into chapter 19 of Revelation, we read about Jesus coming back the second time and how he is victorious as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we're going to look a little bit at Revelation 19, but we're going to spend a lot of our time also tonight in Revelation chapter 20. And Revelation chapter 20, we find what we can refer to as the millennial prophecy. Millennial is actually a Latin word. Mila comes from a thousand, annium, year, so a thousand year prophecy. And we're going to look at when that thousand years begins and, and what happens during those thousand years and what happens at the end of those thousand years. And I think you'll be inspired by that prophecy that we'll be looking at this evening. And then finally, the last two chapters in the Bible, the last two chapters in the book of Revelation, they deal with the new Jerusalem and the new earth. Uh, and then we can really refer to being finally at home, at home at last. 
and uh, this is the place that God has prepared for us. I think I mentioned this earlier in this seminar, but I find the structure of the Bible very interesting because when you open your Bible and you're going to read the Bible um, and you start there in the very first book, the book of Genesis, chapter one and two, the first two chapters of the Bible are dealing with this perfect environment that God has created uh, where God has a perfect relationship with his people and where there is no curse and no sin. There's no suffering. There's no sorrow. There's no death. But then the conflict begins in chapter three and we are, we are thrown into this war of thrones, this battle between good and evil. But then when you get to the end of the Bible and you get to, to the book of Revelation, it's interesting that Revelation chapter 20 describes the final battle between good and evil. Uh, and then in chapter 21 and 22, you again have two chapters where there is no pain, no suffering, death has been conquered, death has been done away with, the devil has been done away with, hallelujah, sin has been done away with, and we are finally at home with Christ, and everything has been restored, and there's this little, this little phrase there in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, and it says, the curse is no more. The curse of sin has been removed. What a beautiful message. And so, you know, I'm, I'm holding here in my fingers, uh, here is, you know, if, if I turn here to Genesis chapter 3, and I'm here in Revelation chapter 20, and I have two chapters on this side with a perfect world and a perfect God and a perfect relationship between God and man and no curse and no sin, and then I have two chapters in the end, what am I holding between my fingers? <laughs> the great controversy between good and evil, right? What I'm holding between my fingers is the War of Thrones. What I'm holding between my fingers is this battle that is raging in our universe today uh, where, where, where these two powers are seeking for our allegiance. They're seeking for our loyalty. They're seeking for our commitment and our faithfulness. And the question is, are you going to be faithful to God in the midst of this battle between good and evil? And uh, we know that in the end, Christ will reign victorious. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 19, we have a picture of the victory of Christ when he returns the second time. And the imagery that is used in Revelation chapter 19 is fascinating because it describes Jesus as coming on a white horse. And the language here was a language that was, was, that was understood by, by, the, by, by the, the, uh, the biblical audience uh, of when the Bible was written, particularly because whenever there was one army facing off with another army, the army that would win the battle, the army that would conquer, what they would many times do is they would ride across the, the field of battle on a white horse, and that would symbolize or that would signify that they were victorious. And so here Jesus, in the end of time, he rides on a white horse because he is the victorious one in this battle. When this battle finally comes to an end, Jesus will be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now take notice what it says in Revelation chapter 19 and looking there at verse 1 and 2. Revelation chapter 19 verse 1 and 2. It says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot. Remember great harlot, mystery Babylon the Great? Who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So here is, is, is the utterance of victory. 
Here is the declaration of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. And Mystery Babylon, that great harlot that we learned about in Revelation chapter 17, this false power that has set itself up to, to rule the world and to control the masses of people, this power has been defeated. Revelation chapter 19 makes it very clear. In the same chapter, verse 5 and 6 says, then a, voice, then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God for all his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And so Revelation chapter 19 is really a marker in the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is built up uh, where it describes the battle between good and evil. And Revelation chapter 1, you'll get this vision of Jesus and then it leads us right into the history of the church and, and the events that will, that will occur from the days of John until the end of time. But as you move your way through the chapters of the book of Revelation, it's like the battle is intensifying and intensifying and intensifying. And you see this beast power that rises up. And then you have this woman in Revelation 17, which is a, the, the, the false system, a Babylon the Great that rises up and seeks to control the kings of the earth and control the people of the earth. But then when you get to chapter 18 of Revelation, it says, Babylon, Babylon has fallen. It's over. This, this system uh, has, not, has not been able to fulfill um, uh, what, it, what it wanted to fulfill. It's not been able to do what it wanted to do because God is now is coming in between. God is doing his work in this world and Babylon has fallen. And Revelation chapter 19, when we come there, then the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes on the scene. Jesus himself reigns and Babylon is no more. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 to 9 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Now that's interesting. So Revelation chapter 19 uh, brings us to the moment of victory, the moment where Jesus is reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but it also tells us something significant about God's people here on earth. And what it tells us about God's people here on earth is that they are like a bride that, have made, that, that, that has made herself ready for a marriage. And what kind of marriage is this? Well, the Bible tells us it's the marriage supper of the what? Of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this is a theme that, we, that runs all through Scripture. This is a theme that, again, we find from the very beginning of Scripture until the very end of Scripture, the idea that God's people, God's movement, God's church is, 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 is pictured in Scripture as a bride, as a woman. And who is the bridegroom? It's Jesus Christ himself, right? Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. And so ultimately what, what will happen in the end of time, uh, according to these verses that we just read, is that the bride will be ready. God's people will have prepared themselves for the coming of Christ. The bride is now adorned and the bride is clothed. And take notice, if I go back here uh, for a moment, what was that? What was the clothing symbolizing? It says, to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the what? 
the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, they have allowed the power of God to fill their lives. They have allowed for the Spirit of God to take control of their hearts. They have allowed for God's promises and His commandments to be written in their hearts and their minds. They are living according to the ways of God, and God is empowering them to do that. And, and, and this is symbolized in the Bible by the bride being arrayed in fine linen. These are the righteous acts of the saints. And they're not the righteous acts because we have it all together, but it's because of the righteousness of God that has filled our lives. Amen? And, and it's produced a, a witness in the world of the glory of God and the character of God. And so when you, when you actually look at what is written here in Revelation chapter 19, we can ask a very important question. And that is, in the context of this final marriage, in the context of this unity between Christ and the church, actually, who is waiting for who? Is the bridegroom waiting for the bride or is the bride waiting for the bridegroom? Are we waiting for Jesus or is Jesus waiting for us? And I guess you can answer yes, yes to both of those questions, right? Because, of course, we are waiting for Jesus. Yes, we are living in a world where we see that the, 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 the signs of the times are intensifying. We see that the battle between good and evil is intensifying. We are seeing the things that Jesus has told would happen take place around us. We see how the signs are becoming more intense and more frequent. There are earthquakes, there's pestilence, there's hurricanes. The love of many is waxing cold, as Jesus described in Matthew chapter 20. And, and, and there's, there's all these, these calamities that are taking place. And so we see that we're getting closer and closer to the end of time. And yes, in anticipation, we're waiting for the coming of Jesus. But, but it's not just that we are waiting for Jesus to come. It is Jesus that is also waiting for us as the bride of Christ, as the movement of God to adorn ourselves and to clothe ourselves and to be ready for that marriage. Amen. For the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is Christ also waiting for us. There's another picture in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 14, you will remember Revelation chapter 14. We've gone over this a number of times. These incredible three messages referred to as the three angels' messages. The last messages that need to go into all the world before Jesus comes. And then right after that, you have a picture of Jesus coming on the clouds of glory. And he's, ar he's arrayed in his kingly um, clothing. And, and, and he has a crown on his head. And it says that in his hand, he has a sharp sickle. And the symbolism is, again, speaking volumes, because what do you do with a sickle? Well, you harvest, right? Now, let me ask you a question. The farmer, as he looks at his field, is the field waiting for the, waiting for the, for the, for the uh, farmer, or is the farmer waiting for the field? The farmer is waiting for the field, right? The farmer is waiting for the field, and what is he waiting for? For the field to be? For, for it to be ripe, right? And so what is God waiting for? When he looks upon his church, when he looks upon his movement, he is waiting for them to demonstrate the character of God in this, in this world by being filled with the Spirit so that they can be prepared for his coming. Amen? Amen. So that this final unity can take place, and which is described in the Bible as a marriage. Okay, so let's move now into Revelation chapter 20, and let's take a look at this incredible prophecy, also referred to as the Millennium Prophecy. So Revelation chapter 19 described the coming of Jesus, the final victory, God's people have made themselves ready. When then Jesus appears on the horizon, when he comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, what's going to happen to this world? What's going to happen to us that are waiting for his coming? Well, the Bible tells us what is going to mark the beginning of the 1,000 years described in Revelation chapter 20. 
The beginning of this period of a thousand years, the beginning of the millennial prophecy, is marked by the coming of Jesus and what we refer to as the first resurrection. Because when Jesus comes again, something incredible is going to happen. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. And those that have put their trust in Jesus, their faith in Jesus, they are going to be resurrected to life, right? The Bible tells us this. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 and 5, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then it refers to this as the first resurrection. This is the first resurrection. So those that are now reigning with Jesus, those that, uh, that, that, that are with Jesus during those thousand years in heaven are those that have been part of that first resurrection or those that were living when he returned, right? So Jesus returns and the resurrection takes place of the faithful and together with those that are alive and have put their faith in Christ, they meet the Lord in the air and then they are taken to heaven and they are there with him for a thousand years. Take notice of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and how it describes what happens when Christ returns. It says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Paul is writing here. He says, concerning those who have fallen asleep, and he's not referring here to taking a nap or sleeping during the night. He's referring here to the sleep of death, as we will see in the context, because right after that, he says, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Well, you don't sorrow for someone that just takes a nap. Here, he's talking about the sleep of death. And then he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And again, the second coming is no secret, my friends. This is not some kind of rapture where someone is just taken away and no one knows about it. The Bible is very clear. It will be an audible event. It will be a visible event. It will be a glorious event. It will be an event that no one will miss. And then it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the what? In the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Uh, when Jesus comes back and the dead in Christ arise and are raised and together with the living, we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We're not going to meet the Lord in the air in order to come back to this desolate earth. We are meeting the Lord in the air to be taken to the place that he has prepared for us. As a matter of fact, there's this very well-known verse in the book of John, the fourth gospel book, uh, chapter 14, where Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in me. You, be uh, 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 you believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That's John 14, verse 1 to 3. So Jesus says, I go, I prepare a place, I come back, and I receive you unto myself that where I am you may be also. So he, we are taken to the place that he has prepared where? In heaven. In heaven during these thousand years. Okay. Now, look at what it says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 and 5 again. What are we going to do there during those thousand years? So, you know, if we are living when Jesus Christ comes, we will meet him in the air. If we have died before Jesus Christ has come, but we've put our faith in Christ, we will be resurrected and we will meet him in the air and he will take us to heaven. What are we going to do during those thousand years? Because, you know, you have this imagery from the dark ages. You have this, these, these paintings and sometimes they are reproduced today also where, you know, you have the little angels that are just playing the harp. Are you going to play the harp for a thousand years? What are you going to do in heaven? <laughs> You're going to get bored doing that? 
what are you going to do? Dance on the clouds? What are you going to do? Walk the golden streets? You know, we have this imagery, this picture of heaven, but I think it's going to be quite different sometimes than we imagine in our finite minds. Are you with me? Listen to what the Bible says about something, at least what we will be doing, what the Bible actually points out, what we will be doing during those thousand years. Revelation chapter 20, verse four and five says, and I saw thrones and they sat on them. And listen to this, this wording here. And what, what does it say? Judgment was committed to them. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, these are the, those that are part of the first resurrection. Now, what does it mean when the Bible says, and judgment was committed to them? Well, you know, sometimes the word judgment is applied in different ways, even in the English language. For example, um, when you say about someone else, now that person has good judgment. What do you actually mean when you say that about someone else? Well, you actually are saying about that person, they have good insight into whatever the case is, right? They have good judgment. They have spiritual eye self. You know, they, 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 they are able to see this in a good way, in a correct way, in a truthful way. Judgment was committed to them. You know what? This is going to be so incredibly inspiring. During the thousand years that we will be in heaven, judgment will be committed to the saints. And what that means is this whole great controversy between good and evil and all that has transpired throughout this controversy between good and evil, this is going to now be revealed to those that are with Jesus and reigning with him during these thousand years. They are going to have insight into the great controversy. They're going to have insight into the events that have unfolded during the plan of salvation. Because guess what? There are a lot of questions that I know you have, and I know that I have, that simply cannot be answered on this side of eternity. Are you with me? There are certain questions, certain things we don't understand. Maybe some suffering you've gone through. Maybe someone you've lost. And you think, how is this possible? God, you're a good God. And, and, and I don't understand. And there's many things that we don't understand in the course of this great controversy, in the course of our lives. But guess what? There will be a time, my friends. There's a time that is set aside. And it's not just an hour or two hours. It's a thousand years. And it's set aside for the purpose of giving to God's people insight, giving them judgment, giving them truth about matters that perhaps were not understood before. And, and, and I find this, this is just incredible because it says volumes about the character of God. God is not that kind of parent. And you, you've maybe seen this kind of parent or maybe you were raised this way, but there are parents that, you know, they will tell their children, you can't do that. And then the child will ask, why can't I do that? And then the parent will answer, you know what I'm going to say, because I said so. <laughs> and you're thinking like, yeah, I've done that a couple of times, <laughs> you know, and, and that's not the kind of parent that God is. God, when he says, I did it like this. And then we say, yeah, but God, why did you do it exactly like that? Oh, let me show you. Let me show you. Judgment was given to the saints. Insight was given to the saints. It actually says that, that you know, books were opened. Now, I don't know how that looks like in heaven if, you know, there will be maybe ways in, in which information is given that is very different than how we retain and communicate information today. But God has a way of communicating to us throughout these thousand years regarding why he has done what he has done. And it will be clear for us all that he indeed is righteous in all his acts. I heard someone say, you know, there will be three surprises in heaven. Surprise number one, that you are there. Surprise number two, that there is someone there that you didn't expect to be there, right? You, you, the person is there and you're like, well, what is this person doing here? 
you know? And surprise number three, there was someone that you did expect would be there but wasn't there, right? Those are the three surprises when you get to heaven, at least. There will be probably more than that. But those three surprises you can, you can already anticipate. So how do you deal with that? Like, like, let's take one story in scripture, for example. You know, you remember uh, Stephen? Stephen in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, he's described. And, and Stephen was, the, was this uh, incredibly um, gifted communicator of the gospel. He was filled with the spirit. He's preaching with power. And then uh, the tide turns against him. The religious leaders want to get rid of him. And so they carry him out of the city and they stone him to death. And guess who's watching and who is agreeing to everything that is happening? Saul, which later became Paul, which wrote much of the New Testament. And so the last thing that Stephen sees as the stones are being hurled at him and he's losing his life is he sees Saul. And then he gets to heaven and he's walking around and Saul, Paul, there's some explanation to be done, right? And this is exactly, during these thousand years, judgment was committed to them, insight was given to them. What an incredible reunion between these two as, as, as Stephen understands and, 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 and has an insight into what became of Saul. And he will be able to retrace that story. I don't know how God is going to do it, but he has much better technology than we have to show the story. And he will, Stephen will be able to see what happened to Saul and how he became Paul and how he had this turnaround on the, on the road to Damascus and how he met Jesus and, and all that he experienced and all that he went through. And Saul, and, which became Paul, and Stephen will become best buddies. I'm sure about that because of these thousand years, because of what is happening during this time. Lots of explanation that needs to be done. Perhaps there will be someone that you thought would be there, but they're not there. Well, God will show you why they are not there. And someone will be there and you, you never expected them to be there. God will show you why they are there. You don't have to go through millions and millions and millions of years wondering why this person is not there or wondering why they are there. God is revealing his character and his ways throughout these thousand years. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be incredible. Actually, there was a, a book that was written which had an interesting title. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this book, and he entitled this book God in the Dock. Now, in the, in the typical you know, English setting, in a court case, um, you would refer to the person in the dock, and they were basically the one that was being questioned like in a court case. And so they were sitting there, uh, actually, you know, before in time, they actually had this, you know, little spot where they were supposed to sit. And it was referred to as the dock. This person's in the dock. This person's being questioned. And so he talks about here, God in the dock. God puts himself in a position where he says, okay, come on, come on, ask the questions. What are you wondering about? What are you wondering about in this great controversy? Ask the questions. I will give the answers. And what, an, what a vulnerability and what a beauty for God to not just say, well, I did it this way and you better just live with it, but actually willing to unfold the great controversy to us, willing to show us things that we have never seen before in order to teach us and show us that indeed he can be trusted all the way. You know, Psalms uh, chapter 145 and verse 17 puts it, sums it up so beautifully. It says, the Lord is righteous in how many of his ways? In all of his ways, gracious in how many of his works? All of his works. And I believe this will be the proclamation of the people that are living and reigning with Christ during those thousand years that will have access to, to those books and that will have access to the workings of God in the great controversy. We will be able again and again and again as we have these revelations to say, wow, 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 the Lord is righteous in all his ways. Oh, he's gracious in all his works. 
1 Corinthians also adds a little interesting uh, uh, dimension to, to, to this, uh, what, what is going to take place during these thousand years. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, Paul says something remarkable. This little line that causes us really to think uh, about these, these things. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then he says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Judge angels. When does that happen? Where does that happen? Well, again, this happens during the thousand years. During the thousand years, judgment is committed to the saints. Now, remember that in the great controversy between good and evil, there were angels involved. In the beginning, God uh, had his angels. Even before this earth was created, before humans were created, God had angels, and there was an angel that rebelled against God, and his name is Lucifer, and he's identified in scripture. Later, he became known as the devil, and Satan, and the dragon, but this was an exalted angel that had the very position right after the position of God and Christ. He was the commander of the angels. He rebels against his maker, and the Bible tells us that a third part of the angels side with him in this battle. And so eventually when the battle erupts and they are removed from the presence of God, the battle continues here on earth. But in the end, when Christ comes again and we're taken to heaven and during these thousand years, judgment is committed to the saints, we will also have insight into the rebellion regarding these angels, the rebellion regarding this conflict between good and evil, how it began, what was involved. And again, we will see over and over and over again that God is righteous in all his ways and that he can be trusted. And so we have the thousand years commencing or beginning with the first resurrection and the second coming of Jesus. The, during the thousand years, God's people, God's uh, redeemed will be in heaven with Christ. But then the Bible also tells us in Revelation chapter 20, what will happen to Satan during these thousand years. And we are told in Revelation chapter 20 that Satan is bound on this earth during that time period of a thousand years. Take notice what it says here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now again, we're looking here at the language of being limited. This power is being limited. Uh, you know, perhaps not literal chains involved in this because this is a spiritual being after all, but this spiritual being is going to be limited in what he can do for a thousand years. And he's going to be chained, according to the prophecy here, um, and, and cast into the bottomless pit. Now the expression bottomless pit is an interesting one. Because this is the way that the translators have rendered this in the, in, in the New Testament Greek here. But actually, the original word for bottomless pit in the Greek language is the word abyssos or abyss, which is the same expression that is used all the way back in the book of Genesis in the first chapter. And when you start reading the Bible in the very first chapter, two verses, listen to what it says, you, you turn to, you go to, you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, and it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. That's the expression, abusus, the same expression used in Revelation here. And darkness was on the face of the deep. In other words, that what is described here is the earth before creation. The earth before God said, let there be light, and there was light. Before anything was created, this earth was the abyss, the abyss. It was dark, there was darkness upon the face of this earth. It was without form 
and void. Now, what happens in the end of time when Jesus Christ comes again, this earth will be brought back to its state before creation, and Satan will be chained or his, his access will be limited to this earth in its state before creation. It's brought back to, 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 to the, uh, with being without form and void. As a matter of fact, even in the Old Testament, there's, uh, the prophet Jeremiah refers to what's going to happen when Christ returns, what's going to happen to this earth. And, and take notice of how he prophetically describes this. He says the following in verse 23 to verse 26. He says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. There you have the same expression. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down. And how did this all happen? He says, at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. When Jesus Christ returns... There's going to be such a, 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 a manifestation of his power and glory. And you can actually, describe, you can actually read this um, in, in, in Revelation chapter 16, for example. It talks about the seven last plagues. We haven't had time to go into that. But if you look at those seven last plagues that will take place before uh, Jesus returns, basically this earth will be utterly, utterly made desolate and brought back to its condition before creation. When Jesus returns, it's not a very pretty picture to say it that way. You know, it's almost like when the, when, the, when the Hebrews left Egypt, there wasn't much left of Egypt after those 10 plagues. It didn't look very nice. And so the world is reduced to this desolate place. And then when the righteous are taken to heaven with Christ and, 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 every, and, and there's nothing left on this earth, Satan is bound to this earth for a thousand years. And the question is why, why? Well, I believe there's, there's huge um, uh, theological meaning in all of this because think about this. In the beginning, what was the argument of Lucifer against God? The, the argument, the whole War of Throne controversy broke out in the beginning because Lucifer said to God, I, I want to be like the Most High. I am not content being a created being. I want to be the creator. I want to be the creator. And so this rebellion breaks out. He wants the position of the creator. He cannot have the position. And, and everything unfolds that we read about in scripture regarding this war between good and evil. And in the end, when Jesus reigns victorious, when he comes back and he takes his people to heaven, he reduces this earth to how it was in the beginning before anything was created. He puts the devil on this planet. He puts Lucifer on this planet and he leaves him there for a thousand years. And it's like God is saying, you've got the opportunity, Lucifer, create something. Create something. And by the way, I'll give you a thousand years. And after the thousand years, what do you think has been created? Nothing. Nothing. And so the, the, the whole picture that, it, that emerges here from Scripture is that God is the only creator. Can you say amen? God is the only one that can, that can speak light into existence. Let there be light and there was light. There's no other person that can do it. There's no angel that can do it. There's no being in the universe that can create light by the, by the voice, uh, by, by the word of their mouth. And everything that God created in the beginning, he created with his voice and he created this beautiful planet. But now this planet is reduced to what it was before creation. The devil is chained. The devil is, 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 is not able to go anywhere. He's just on this desolate planet, but he cannot create. And this is again a testimony to the power of God and God alone.
And so this great controversy is now nearing its very, very end. But take notice what else needs to take place. So we have seen that the thousand-year millennium is commenced or begun when the second coming takes place and the first resurrection takes place. The saved are with Jesus, judging, looking into those books, looking into the works of God during those thousand years. Satan is bound on this earth during those thousand years. And when the thousand years come to an end, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20 that there will be what we refer to here as a second resurrection. Okay? Now take notice, it says it in Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. It says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until, until the thousand years were finished. Okay? Now you say, is there any other place in Scripture where we learn about there being two resurrections? Because you say maybe, oh, this, this sounds very new to me. And okay, the book of Revelation says, you know, there's a first resurrection, there's a second resurrection. But, but is there any other place outside of the book of Revelation that talks about two resurrections? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Let me share just two of these places with you. First, from the writings of Paul, okay? So these are the writings of the Apostle Paul. He said in Acts chapter 24, verse 15, the following. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, listen to this, both of the just and the what? Unjust. So there will be a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. Now, Jesus himself referred to there being two resurrections as well. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, the Bible says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. It says all. And then he says, those who have done good to the resurrection of what? Life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of what? Condemnation. So there's going to be a resurrection of life and there's going to be a resurrection of condemnation. According to Revelation chapter 20, these two resurrections are separated by a thousand years. The first resurrection happens when Jesus comes again and the thousand years begin. The second resurrection takes place at the end of the thousand years. Now, what happens at the end of those thousand years? Well, look at this, Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 8. What happens to Satan, the devil that has been bound on this earth for a thousand years? What happens? The Bible tells us, it says, Now when the thousand years have expired... Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now, it's almost like, you know, Satan has had this like time off, like a thousand years all by himself. He's not able to deceive because there's no one to deceive. You know, the earth is desolate, the righteous are in heaven, the, 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 the second resurrection has not yet happened, and so he's there for a thousand years. But the moment that the thousand years are over, and the moment that the second resurrection takes place, and the people are back here, what does he do? Well, he does the very same thing that he did right before the thousand years. He continues with his work of deception. And it says he goes to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And then it uses this expression, Gog and Magog, which is actually an expression taken from the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. Gog and Magog were nations that were enemies of God's chosen people at that time, of Israel. And it's interesting that Gog and Magog were, were described there as enemies of God's people. And in the end of time, it's describing basically all of those that are part of the second resurrection, all of those that are now seeking to attack the very city of God, to attack the very people of God under the command of none other than Satan himself. Now, it says that the number is as the sand of the sea, 
And what are they going to do? What are they going to do as they, as they are resurrected? The second resurrection has happened. Satan has been released. He's deceiving them now once more. What takes place now? Well, the Bible also tells us in Revelation chapter 20 and 21 that at the end of the thousand years, the holy city or the new Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem in heaven, will come down and settle on this earth. There are actually also Old Testament prophecies alluding to this. And so when the holy city comes down and the new Jerusalem is established on this earth, the second resurrection has taken place and Satan is now deceiving those that are part of the second resurrection and he is motivating them and leading them in an attack on the city of God that has now descended upon this earth. And when you read Revelation chapter 20 and 21, it gives you this, especially chapter 20, this panoramic picture of what takes place because Think about this, the two kingdoms of all ages, they finally meet and in the presence of all, Jesus is seen as the rightful king. Think about this, the war of thrones has been raging for centuries. The war of thrones broke out in heaven when Lucifer rebelled against God. It, 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 this world got involved and, and, and throughout the centuries we have seen this battle between good and evil. And in the end, when Jesus comes back, and after the thousand years are spent in heaven, and then we return to this earth, because this earth is going to be our final home. The thousand years are only in heaven, but, but finally, this earth, the very center of the rebellion, the very center of sin, is going to be the center of God's righteousness. It's going to be the center of his throne. And so we come back to this earth, and then the new Jerusalem comes down. The second resurrection takes place. The devil leads these people that are part of the second resurrection to, to surround the city of God. And basically, right then, you have all of the ages represented. Those in the city, those out of the city. Those that are part of the kingdom of God and those that are part of the kingdom of Satan. And my friends, in the War of Thrones, there are only two sides. In the War of Thrones, there are only two kingdoms. And we decide today which kingdom we belong to. Do we belong to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan? And when they meet, there will be this realization that really Jesus is the rightful king. But the Bible describes there in, in, in Revelation chapter 20 that uh, in verse 9 it says, They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. So here, those part of the second resurrection, those under the, under the leadership of Satan himself, they surround the camp of the saints. They surround the new Jerusalem that has come down and settled on this earth and the beloved city. And it says, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And we, we dealt with this verse earlier on in our seminar when we talked about hellfire. And we talked about how hellfire, the traditional view of hellfire, talks about an eternal conscious torture, eternal conscious suffering. This is not actually what we find in the Bible. In the Bible, there is a final destruction, but it's actually a destruction here of those that have held on to sin. It's, uh, it's an eradication of sin. And this is happening right here at the end of the thousand years when the wicked surround the city and fire comes down from heaven and it says it devours them. They don't continue to burn throughout the endless, ceaseless ages of time. It devours them. And what is done here is that sin is done away with. Sin has been removed. And now it is time for the most beautiful thing that is ever going to happen. And that is the recreation of this world. Just like God created this world in the beginning, he is going to recreate it after the thousand years, when the city has come down and the, all wickedness and all sin have now been removed from the universe, then the time will come that he will recreate this earth. 
and it will be brought back to its original beauty that it had in the beginning before sin, before the curse. Can you imagine what that will be, not, that, what that will be like? I mean, it's hard for us to imagine what it will be like because it's hard for us in our finite minds to even, even envision what that would be like. It will be better than what you can envision. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 to 5, it says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And my friends, you can put your, you can put your confidence in, 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 this, in, in these words tonight. Because if you think about it, of all the other prophecies that we find in Scripture, they have all come to pass. We have hundreds of prophecies concerning the Messiah and his first coming. It happened exactly as was predicted. We have prophecies regarding which kingdoms would come in their order. It happened exactly as it was predicted. We have prophecies so detailed and we look back and we see their fulfillment again and again and again and again. And it establishes our trust in the word of God. And I have no doubt that the final prophecies that have not yet happened will in like manner happen to the very detail. Amen? We can, we can be sure that this is going to happen. There will be a time, my friends, that God will wipe away all tears. There will be a time that there will be no more suffering, no more crying, no more death. The curse will be, have, have been removed, and God will recreate this earth in its original beauty. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23 says, The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. When God recreates this world, when he recreates this, this, this planet, and it becomes the very center, no longer of sin and the curse, but it becomes the very center of God's beautiful and incredible character, then it's going to be beyond anything that we could have ever imagined. You know, there's not even need of a sun or a moon because God, the glory of God, illuminates this place. The Lamb, Jesus, is its light. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, it says the following, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So do your best to envision how glorious this will be. And I'm telling you tonight, it will be better than what you can envision. <laughs> do your best to think of the incredible things that you can experience in that place when there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more suffering. Imagine what it's like when the curse of sin is removed. And just in your finite mind, you'll be able to somewhat get a picture of perhaps what it could look like a little bit, but it will be far better than that. Because eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. My friends, do you love him? Amen. Do you love him tonight? And if you love him tonight, then you can look forward to coming home at last because this will be our final home. Our final home will be this planet, but it will be this planet after the thousand years and after all wickedness has been removed and after this world has been recreated to its original beauty, then here will be the place where the curse has been removed and where God reigns, amen? As King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we will finally be at home. 
You know, I started this whole seminar when we started the very first night for three weeks ago. We talked about this parable in Matthew chapter 13. And it's an interesting parable because it really pictures the great controversy between good and evil. Jesus tells this story about a man who goes out and he sows seeds in his field. And he expects there to be a good harvest. But then something happens. The, the story goes on and Jesus says about, about how there's a, an enemy that comes at night and he sows different seeds. And so the wheat grows up, but the tares grow as well. And Jesus tells this simple story to give us a picture of the great controversy between good and evil. Because he tells us that the field is really a picture of the world. And we're going through a world where we see good things and where we see bad things. We see beautiful things and we see tragic things. We see, we see where there is happiness and there is sorrow. There is life and there is death. And there's always these two sides to life. And it's like we're walking through that field. We're walking through that field. There is a war of thrones that is raging around us. But listen to what Jesus says as he identifies um, um, the, the, the characters in this parable. And he says, he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. Son of man is Jesus, amen? This is the very title that he gave to himself again and again and again. Jesus says, I'm the son of man. I'm the son of man. I'm son. It's actually derived from the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. And he says, I'm the son of man. And so what kind of seed does Jesus sow into this world? He sows good seed. He sows good seed. And when you sow good seed, you will get a good harvest. It says the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. And listen, my friends, Jesus, as the son of man, is seeking to sow good seeds into your life because you and I are called to be the sons and the daughters of the kingdom. Amen? And so as he sows his truth into our life, as he sows his promises into our life, then what will happen is it will produce a harvest. We will grow in grace. Amen? But if we do not allow Jesus to sow the promises into our life, there will be someone else that will sow into our lives. Because the Bible tells us, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is who? Is the devil. Uh, so the devil is also sowing seeds. He's sowing lies in this world. He's sowing lies about the character of God. He's sowing lies about, about, about and, and, and inventing religions that distort the character and picture of God. He's sowing lies about what consists of true happiness. He's sowing lies of what a marriage is or isn't. He's sowing lies about so many things, and it is really a counterfeit that is at work, but it also produces a harvest, and the harvest is clearly seen in our world today. Confusion regarding the character of God, confusion regarding what true happiness is, confusion regarding truth and error. Misunderstandings are rampant in our world today, and it's because there's an enemy at work, an enemy that is sowing seeds. And as we get closer to the end of time, we're going to see clearer and clearer that there's going to be two harvests, that it will be ready and ripe for harvest. And it will be the, the wheat and the tares, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the wicked one. And so we're left with this choice because very soon the harvest will be reaped. It says the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and we're getting closer to that. And the reapers are the angels. Soon the angels are going to come. Soon Jesus is going to come and the harvest is going to be reaped. And it's my prayer that throughout this seminar that your heart has been stirred for you to say, you know what? I want Jesus to sow in my life. I want to be part of the sons of the kingdom. I want to be prepared for when Christ returns in those clouds of glory. And you know, right after the parable in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the uh, wheat and the tares, it's very interesting because right after that, Jesus tells another parable. And I want to close with this. Jesus tells a remarkable parable in Matthew chapter 13, right after the parable of the wheat and the tares. He says in verse 44, 
Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure, treasure that is hidden in a field, which a man found and hid and for joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then the, the next parable he tells in verse 45 and 46, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought the pearl. So the gospel is revealed here as a treasure and as a pearl. And you know what? The sons of the kingdom, those that have put God first in their life, they will see the gospel. They will see the word of God for what it truly is. It's a treasure. It's a pearl. It's worth more than anything you could ever imagine. And they are willing to give up whatever needs to be given up in their lives to obtain the treasure, to obtain the pearl. In the end, there are only two kingdoms, my friends. There's the kingdom of light and there's the kingdom of darkness. And if you belong to the kingdom of light, you will experience a freedom that this world cannot give. You will experience uh, spiritually that you've been set free from the bondage of sin. And this will happen when you see the gospel and the word of God as that treasure that is hidden in the field, as the pearl of great price. And my friends, that treasure can be obtained tonight. You don't need to wait till next week or next month or next year. You don't have to wait till you get your life together in order to appreciate this treasure. You can say today, even in your brokenness, even in your despair, even in the difficult trials and, 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 and circumstances of your life, you can say, you know what? I want that treasure. Amen? And I'm going to pursue that treasure. And in the pursuit of that treasure, I'm going to allow the healing touch of Jesus to restore me. Because we all need to be restored, amen? We're all broken through the curse of sin. But God wants to start that restoration. And he will do that restoration in us as we fix our eyes on the treasure. As we fix our eyes on Jesus and the gospel. Because in the gospel of Christ is the only life, true life, abundant life that this world can offer. And it is given through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Oh, Christ has come, but he's going to come again. And when he comes again, he's going to take us home. And when he takes us home, we will be home at last. Amen. And so I just pray that in the course of all these presentations that we've had and, and the inspiration that we, have, that we have gained from scripture, that it will just allow us again and again and again to fix our eyes on Jesus, to fix our eyes on the treasure. Because when we fix our eyes on the treasure, the things of this earth will become dim. And, it, and, 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 and before and, and in front of all of these things that we are going through and, and, and through all of the difficulties that we are facing, we will see what is of true value in this life. Because it's not that career, it's not that car, and it's not that promotion, but the true lasting joys are found in Jesus, amen? And so I just pray that that will be your experience. And I pray that you will continue to grow in grace because let this not be the end of your journey. Even though we have been together for the last three weeks, we've been exploring scripture together. I pray that this will not be the end, but rather the, the beginning of your journey, that you will continue to delve into scripture, that you continue to explore the prophecies, that you continue to examine this war of thrones, and that you'll continue to take a stand for the gospel of Jesus and for um, God, the Father, and for the Spirit that seeks to fill you. Amen? That's my prayer for you all. And um, let's have a closing prayer as we, as we end this series, that, that that's what God will do for us, that we will be inspired, encouraged to continue this journey with Him, and that our eyes truly may be fixed on Jesus. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for these last three weeks that we've been able to spend together here in Sutherland. I want to thank you, Lord, for your word. I want to thank you for the gift of the gospel, which is indeed a, a, an incredibly valuable treasure. And Lord, it's, it's beyond what we can even express in human language. And I pray that as we fix our eyes on you and on that treasure, that, that you will create in us um, a desire to, to give up whatever is needed in this life to obtain you, to follow you, and to make you first and foremost. Lord, there's perhaps even things that you're bringing to our remembrance right now, things that we, that we know that we need to give up in order to come closer to you. I pray that you'll give us the strength to do so, that this will not be the end of our journey, but merely the beginning. I pray for every single one of us, Lord, that you'll continue to guide us in a knowledge of you and that we may be together with you when you come again. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.